Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to begin reading, begin reading in verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 1, beginning verse 18. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is, in trans- which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then by divinely Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child and destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled... Well, it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. 
Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Last week we began a three-part series. And if you missed last week, um, I'm not going to review it. You're going to have to listen to the podcast or perhaps uh, request a CD. Um, We are using as our launching passage for this series the chapter in Luke that we ended up with in Luke chapter 24 where Christ says that all things had to be fulfilled which were written in the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And last week we gave an attempt to look at the coming of Christ and His uh, work and the prophetic nature of His coming um, in the books of Moses. And we certainly didn't get to encompass all of what is there, not by a not by a long shot did we come close to that. But we wanted I wanted to take the time to look through them. And I want to just touch on a couple of those yet today. And I want to look into what is written in the prophets. And obviously, it is impossible for me to, in one service, to discuss the mammoth amount of prophetic material that we have regarding Christ in the prophets, just as impossible as it was for me in one service to refer to the mammoth amounts of material that are in the books of Moses with regards to Christ. Uh, last week I didn't discuss um, Melchizedek as a picture of Christ. We didn't talk extensively about the Passover lamb and, and all the intricacies of that, even down to the fact that not one bone was to be broken on the Passover lamb. Uh, again, as a picture of Christ, that not one of his bones would be broken. And, and there is much more there, but I do want to uh, go back to one passage in the works of Moses, which involves the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're going to begin there. We're going to launch ourselves into some of the historical books, because within them we do have the ministry of prophets. When we think of Christ's statement that not only the books of Moses but the prophets, we often immediately jump um, into Jeremiah and Isaiah and we neglect the fact that many of the prophets' ministries are encompassed in the historical books, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Chronicles, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and so and Ruth. We have a lot of material there within those books um, that are also prophetic in nature. And so when Christ here in Luke 24 references the uh, things that had to be fulfilled, which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning Him, uh, we have much more than just 
uh, the major minor prophets. We have those that do not have books written after them, um, but we have their decrees. And some of those are unusual people uh, from our standpoint that we wouldn't necessarily recognize as prophets, and yet there is a prophetic nature to sometimes the events that they participate in, sometimes their very words, and sometimes um, the very uh, things that they were called upon to do. And so this morning we are going to, by God's help and, um, and some fast speech, try to get through a lot of material in the prophets concerning Christ. Not only his coming, but his purpose in coming and its fulfillment. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we do so. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you now for this opportunity to look in your word. And uh, we rejoice that we have it before us in its fullness. And Lord, we are also thankful that 40 minutes, 50 minutes of preaching cannot begin to scratch the surface of the wonder of your word. That we may spend a lifetime and then much of eternity, all of eternity, looking into and delving into its truth. And never be fully satisfied. Lord, we thank you for the marvel of your truth. For it reveals to us the person, character, and work of yourself. And we look forward not only to this study, this hour, and you working in our midst today, but Lord, for the balance of our lives here and then our life in your presence to the, this discovery of the wonder of your work amongst men. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Last week, we did our scripture reading, the Gospel of John's account of the coming of our Lord. I would think you would immediately make the connection, since John begins with the beginning. In the beginning. And of course, my study last week began in the beginning. With Genesis, and the beginning of sin, and the beginning of God's redemptive work, and His promises. And that is where we started the account of Christ, was back there in the triune God and His creative work and making man His image and then responding to the need of man with this revelation of God's divine plan. It wasn't the beginning of the divine plan. The plan of God to deliver men from their sin predated sin. This morning, we have read from the account out of Matthew of our Lord's birth, and you should have picked up immediately a phrase that keeps getting repeated in Matthew, and that is that we would have fulfilled was written by this prophet or that prophet. All through Matthew, we find that reference to the prophets and the necessity of their word being fulfilled in the coming of Christ just as much in his death, burial, and resurrection ascension. And so we want to look at some of those references, but we want to look much more than just the 
handful of references there in Matthew, for it is certain that there is much more to be gleaned from the prophets than those few references, but we're certainly going to touch some of those. I want to take you, though, back into the law, the book of Moses, the books of Moses. I want to take you, first of all, today to the book of Numbers. And I invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24 is one that I skipped last week because I wanted to lead off with it this week. And I don't know how many of you caught that. It was um, this week I want to focus not only upon uh, the fulfilled prophecy, but also the the nature of the work of Christ in terms of its extent. That Christ was not coming as the Messiah of Israel alone, but rather for the whole world. And we have a, a, all interesting characters here in the Law of Moses, in the books of, of the Pentateuch. We have this account, and perhaps one of the most um, direct statements of Christ's coming, uh, uttered not by a man that we would consider godly at all, but rather a man named Balaam, who just had a conversation with his donkey. And now was under the hand of God, and one of those rare occasions when God overthrows the will of men to make sure that what he once declared is stated. Even though Balaam himself claims that this is his utterance, we find that he does acknowledge that he is finally hearing the words of God. And so he has this to say in Numbers 24, verses 17. This is now his uh, fourth prophetic statement and his last one. Now I want to pick up, well, let's begin at the beginning. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemies, shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly out of Jacob. One shall have dominion and destroy the remains of Ur. We see that right within the context of God's extensive blessing when, when the enemies of Israel wanted Israel to be cursed, God says this nation will not be cursed if for only the sake of one who will come and that one at the conclusion of all the blessings that that Balaam has been uh, insisted upon by God to bless Israel with, even though he's been paid money not to do it, he has blessed Israel again and again and again. And now, as the culmination of the blessing of God on this nation Israel, we have it appearing in this one who is far off from this time, who is going to be coming out of Jacob, a one who is this star, who obviously is king and ruler with this scepter, who will bring all things subject to himself, who will have dominion over all the earth. And it is that one Jesus whom we have the privilege now of looking back and celebrating 
His coming. And yet, within this very prophecy, we are looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment when Christ does, in fact, bring all nations subject to Himself. So, while we rejoice to celebrate Christ's first coming in this season, we need to also take time to celebrate His soon return to complete His work. Well, let's look at some things as we press on through our Scriptures into some of the prophetic elements that we see, not only what the prophets stated, but some other images that we have. And again, we have not gone extensively into the imagery around the tabernacle that is described here in the Law of Moses, in the sacrificial system, in the Holy of Holy Place, in, the, in all the the rich imagery that is there. But I want to touch on just a few, and I have some underlying motives for the ones I've selected, um, and as would any author and any speaker would have, because there's such a wide range of what can be selected. But I want to take us right into Joshua chapter 2. And we are confronted with a Canaanite, Balaam, a prophet, false prophet, but... Uh, paid to curse Israel, God says, oh no, you won't curse my people. You'll bless them. Oh, that we would understand that capacity of God to take what the world intends to be a curse upon us and make it a blessing. We saw in the person and character of Joseph that when his, his enemies, his own brethren, wanted to do him injury, God says, no, I will turn that into a blessing by which you will be a deliverer, a savior. We're going to see that brought out again today. Rahab, a Canaanite, here in Jericho, a a city that has been condemned to death, to be given over to God as the first fruits, really, of what God intends to do to all the Canaanites. And within that city, two young men were sent to spy it out ahead of time by Joshua. They encounter this gal who has heard all that God is doing through this people Israel. In fact, all the Jerichoites had. They crossed the Jordan on dry land. If that doesn't get your attention as a city sitting next door to Jordan, not far off, um, I don't know what else, when a horde of nation comes into your territory with a miraculous working of God's hand, Rahab, of course, hides the spies and misdirects the leaders of Jericho to go chase them off. They left not too long ago. You might be able to overtake them. Go get them. (laughs) And, of course, she's got them hidden up on a roof underneath some plant materials. She then, because she is on the, her house sits along the wall of Jericho and has a window right there, She lets them out, and the men give this sign. And the sign becomes very important um, because without it, she would be lost. If this sign isn't in your window, we are free of any obligation to deliver you or yours. We'll give you our promise that we'll deliver your lives from death, but you must set up this sign. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2 of Joshua, it says, We will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear unless 
when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own house, so that be that whoever goes outside the door of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we'll be guiltless. Whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And they go on to describe this. And essentially, the, the, these two young men, and this is a great picture of just how impressive the events of Passover were, take this scarlet cord and say, you put this and hang this out the window and it will be a sign and it will be an establishment of a covenant between you and us that your life is in our hands. Well, where would they get this idea, this concept? Well, this is almost precisely the instructions of Israel before they left Egypt. That night that the Passover was slain and the blood was applied to the door of every Israelite and don't you dare leave your house. You wander off out of those places. Your life is being taken in your own hands. It is not deliverable. It is not secure. You're only secure as long as you're in the house that is covered under the blood. And we have this scarlet cord representing that for Rahab. And she was to leave it outside of the window. She didn't know when these men would be returning. Whether it would be later that day, that night, um, which certainly could have been the case. We know for a fact that it was sometime later um, The men of Israel still had to be circumcised. Another great picture of the necessity um, for that shedding of blood. Uh, We could always go back into that whole picture of of what what, what it was focused on, this whole idea that we have this God that demands the shedding of blood in this covenant relationship. We have here this scarlet cord as a picture of that. Israel had to be circumcised before they would come. So that required at least three or four days to heal from that, perhaps a week or more. We had several days of marching around, a week of marching around the city. And all the time, I want you to notice, the cord was already in the window. Look at verse 21. She said to them, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. She didn't wait till the mar- army started marching. She didn't wait till the walls started falling down. She didn't wait till the very last moment and throw the cord out the window. She put her trust in the promise of these men, but more importantly, in the promise of their God who had just dried up the Jordan. And she said, if this scarlet cord is that which pictures my faith in that God, then I set it in my window, not at the very last minute, not at the, not after I've you know, lived the way I want to live and now that I'm too old to sin, now I'll trust in Jesus Christ. Not when I, when I start seeing the, the sky falling, then I'll trust in Christ. No, she puts that scarlet cord and she binds it. The idea is that she's going to become a permanent fixture in her window that night on that her house would be covered by faith in the God of Israel. And the instrument to demonstrate that uh, cannot be missed, that it is this scarlet cord. Not that the cord itself saved her, but rather pointed to that which her faith rested in 
that shed blood of one to come. We have another incident in the book of Joshua that I want to look at. If you'll go further on into Joshua chapter 22. We have, this is much later, and the land has been conquered and and it has been largely divided up. And now uh, the two and a half tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan River have been released to go. But they have a concern about them. Um, They're concerned that once they get the Jordan River between them and their brethren of Israel and between them and Jerusalem, but not Jerusalem, but Gilgal, between them and the tabernacle, that there might become a rift. And so they go out and they start to build a special altar. And it's elaborate. This is not just a a pile of a couple of rocks. Uh, This is an elaborate place. And it gets everyone's attention. And the rest of Israel is stirred up that they're not coming back. They're going to start worshiping over there. They're not going to come back here to the tabernacle, the only place where we're to worship God and offer sacrifices. They're not coming back. They're building a place to offer their own sacrifices there. And that was abhorrent to Israel. And Israel said, no, 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 we're not going to forget. We're not going to forget what happened to our daddies down there when they worshiped the gods of Egypt. We're not going to forget these last 40 years. We all paid the price. And we're not all going to pay the price. We're not going to let these people get away with worshiping, even if they want to offer sacrifice to the same God, to do it in the wrong place. And without priests, without the priesthood. And so they are raising up, mustering up an army. And they're going to go after them. In verse 10 of chapter 22, we have, And it came, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. And thus the process begins. Why were they building this? They were building it because they didn't want to be excluded. And it was not to be ever be sacrificed on. But the others didn't know that. And after being given a sermon on the necessity of worshiping, verse 21, it says, And the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods. The Lord God of gods, He knows. And let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord or to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings or to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord Himself require an account. But if in fact we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, in time to come your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. You children of Reuben and children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but that may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifice, with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. What was it being built for? Not to offer sacrifices on because they knew there was only one right way to God. There was only one way. And that this would be abhorrent if they were to offer sacrifices here. If they were to offer burnt offerings on this 
place that they knew that that would be sin, that would be error, because God demanded only one way. You see, Christ didn't initiate that idea. That was prophetically ingrained in Israel, in all of their worship, that there was only one way to God. The tabernacle was representative of that. And it would be the only place where acceptable sacrifice was to be made for sin, for the paschal lamb, and and for all that, that was required of Israel as a people. And so they built this place not to offer sacrifices on it says, it says, far be it from us that we should rebel against God like that. Oh, that the northern tribes of Israel had bothered to read this part of Joshua before they went up to Dan and built themselves a place so they wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem. And oh, that modern day people who call themselves religious would consider that this is the pattern that God has established from of old, that there is one way to heaven, Jesus Christ. And that there is right worship and wrong worship, that we should worship His way, not man's way, not the world's way, but His way. And the one person, that one way, is Jesus Christ. And that it's not enough just to lift up and say His name and then worship as we please, but rather we must worship Him in the person of who He is, specifically and in the manner in which he calls us to do so. These things matter to God. And that one way, that one place of acceptable sacrifice, that tabernacle becomes that picture of Christ as the one way to come. Joshua chapter 20, a little bit earlier, describes, just two chapters earlier, describes another wonderful picture of Christ that we have here in this historical book of Joshua, and that is the cities of refuge. That if you were to kill anyone, and you, whether you're not, you were, even if you're guilty, even if you didn't mean to, but it happened unintentionally, and yet you're guilty of the offense, that there would be places scattered throughout Israel where you could run to, places of refuge, places of deliverance, that once you got inside those gates, you were safe. As long as you stayed inside those gates, you were safe. You begin to see a pattern. Rahab, you're safe as long as you stay inside. Israel, you're safe as long as you stay in that house under the blood. You stay in your house under the scarlet cord and criminal, (laughs) you're safe. You stay inside the walls of this city, set aside as a city of refuge. We're all Levitical cities. What a wonderful picture we have of the cities of refuge represent of Christ that when we run to Him, He is the one who delivers, but it mandates that we stay in Him. That we make Him our rock and our fortress, that He will be then our deliverer, our refuge. Well, we press on into Judges. I said I, have a, I haven't even touched the prophets yet. I'm in trouble already. Joshua, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 13. We've already read this. Yes, in Judges there is this prophecy that is applied to Christ. You might say, this doesn't really talk about Christ at all. This is about Samson. And yet, 
Samson himself becomes a kind of portrait of Christ to come, this deliverer of Israel, as does as is every deliverer of Israel. Does that mean they are all perfect portraits of Christ? Obviously not. They were all men with all of their problems and uh, uh, sin issues that they were dealing with, all of their shortcomings. But here we have in chapter 13 of Judges this statement in verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And we have this aspect that is then applied to Christ, that he'll be called a Nazarene. And Israel began to understand this connection between this setting one aside for this service as distinct in, in the manner in which he is raised, in the manner in which he is groomed, in the manner in which he is... Um, he, is, he lives and eats and every facet of his person is set aside for this specific divine purpose. And in that manner, Christ is set aside, unique from all others, for a specific purpose of God, the deliverance not only of Israel, but of all men, as we are soon to see. After Judges comes Ruth. And in Ruth, we cannot miss the character that so clearly portrays Christ. As a type of Christ, Boaz rushes to the forefront because he is the greatest, outside of Christ himself, the greatest picture, the greatest example of a kinsman redeemer that we have. And what a powerful portrait we have here. This one, who is obviously taking some risks, Certainly he has a great love for this gal, and yet um, that is uh, one aspect of it, and and he pictures God's love for his bride. That out of his love for him, he's willing to take some great risk. We find out a little bit about the risk as Boaz goes to the gates, and there's a nearer kinsman, but he has first right to redeem you, Um, and if he turns down that right, then it falls upon me. And why is that important? Because we find out the great risk involved in this kinsman redeemer. And that kinsman who is nearer to Naomi says, ah, I don't, I'll buy up his stuff, but if I have to take her as a bride, that brings jeopardy upon my inheritance. That my estate then uh, might, has a danger of being split, has a danger of being, uh, of having some questions brought over it. And so that kinsman says, no, I don't want to take that risk on my estate. And so if it involves, if it's stuff, that's okay. But if it involves, I have to take upon this role of kinsman redeemer for this widow, I don't accept that role. And Boaz steps forward and says, then so be it, I will. And what a wonderful picture of Christ and his love for us that he takes upon himself this role of our redeemer to do so first of all the first word of that process calls our kinsman when did christ become our kinsman in bethlehem he became our kin when he became man and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory you see the kinsman redeemer first says that we're going to have to have this this blood relationship and 
Christ comes on to fulfill that role of the capital K, kinsman, redeemer, and to do so requires him to become kin with us. That is, that he become man, like unto us, yet without sin. And then the redeemer, to buy us out of absolute despair into blessedness. And what does it do? It brings to bear upon his estate. That is, all that Boaz owned now had to be shared. And we have a wonderful Lord who has become man to become our kin and then has paid the price for our sin and has become our Redeemer. And then He shares with us His eternal inheritance that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ and Boaz understood the costliness of what he was going to engage in. And because of his great love for Ruth, he extended himself and exposed himself to all of that, paid the price for it all. All the debts are paid off. And now he takes to himself his bride and the inheritance is now passed on. And out of that marvelous message of hope, we come to chapter 4. Verse 14, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, the one who said, Don't call me Naomi anymore because I'm bitter. Because the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. Call me as a Mara or something like that. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And here, within the context of the lineage of David, who we know to be the lineage of Christ, we find this wonderful picture, just as we saw the picture of Rahab, uh, of the of a Gentile who is under the curse, being brought into a state of blessedness and being brought into the lineage of Christ, we now come to this description of a kinsman redeemer and, and the beautiful picture in the lineage of Christ. As a an Obed becomes a secondary character, as just a child, as a baby of a picture of one who will restore life. One who will bring new life. And Obed becomes another type of Christ. Press on with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Who is this Christ that we are worshiping this season? 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are now into the days of David the king. And in this place, he has asked for the permission to build the temple. For he sits in a palace and the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God is in a tent. And David says, this just isn't right. We should build a temple to our God. And, and the Lord says, no, not you. I've been living in a tent for a lot of years now. I've been very content in my tent. And you are not to be the one to build me a house of cedar because you have too much blood on your hands. 
And you might think, well, David's going to be really disappointed by this, but he isn't. He's ecstatic because of what is entailed in the response of God to his request. Beginning in verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chase him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is spoken by Nathan the prophet. Now certainly the beginning aspects of this refer to Solomon. We recognize Solomon to be the builder of the house of the temple of God. And yet, the foreshadowing there is very clear. For Solomon did not live forever. But there would come one of the line and lineage of David that would establish his kingdom forever and ever. And that one being Jesus Christ. The Christ had to come out of the line and lineage of David. This is repeated for us again and again in the prophets. Let's jump ahead a little bit to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 Isaiah the prophet, reiterating this sometime later, said, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That out of Jesse, that is David's father, thus out of David, would come this one, who would be deliverer of Israel, Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 9. When we often associate with, rightly so, with the coming of our Lord, we often focus on verse 6, but I want to pick up verse 7. We're going to come back to verse 6 in a second. Well, probably 10 seconds. Of the increase of His government and peace, there is no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This all driven from that covenant promise with David. Your house, your throne will be established forever and it will be established in someone who I will call my son. That being Jesus Christ. This coming one. Go with me. Very quickly to Daniel chapter 9. I want to leave off following this chronologically through your Bible and begin following it chronologically through the events of Christ's coming through the prophets. Daniel chapter 9. Beginning in verse 25 and 26, we have this declaration, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again on the wall, even in troublesome times. We're going to stop right there. You see, all Israel should have known exactly when Christ was coming. They knew the time. This beginning date of Daniel, of when the going forth of command to restore and build Jerusalem, that was declared for us. We have it recorded for us. We have two prophets involved, Haggai and Zechariah. 
we have Zerubbabel and a, and a priestly role there of Joshua. And we find um, Ezra involved with Nehemiah. And we have all of that. They knew specifically when this event occurred that Daniel prophesied, they could set their clock now. Set your clock. Bing. We know what year Christ must come. And lo and behold, He comes. At the time appointed. But He came not just to come and be born, but it says in verse 26, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for Himself. He came to be cut off. He came to die. He came to be delivered not for His own sin. That wasn't what He had to come to be delivered for, but for the sins of others. He came to be cut off not for Himself, for the people, His people. Go back with me now to Isaiah 7. You have to just keep your fingers in Isaiah because we have to keep going back to Isaiah. With each of these events, we keep making that trek back into Isaiah. It is rich and full of prophetic utterances regarding our Lord. And we go back here to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and we find this declaration, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We find this declaration that the Lord, this one, this root of David, this horn, this scepter, this sword, this star, this refuge would come born of a virgin, that seed of a woman that we saw in Genesis Go with me on to Jeremiah. Further statement referencing this idea that of the elevation of this role of woman. In Jeremiah 31, verse 22, it says, How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? Referring to Israel, the daughter of our Lord. The Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. That here, this that was created by God, Israel herself, that is then personified in the character of Mary, is going to be the one who is going to care for this one who will be to the deliverer, the man. That this woman... would be that instrument used by God to bless all of mankind by means of that that she carries. Well, we press on to Hosea. I'd love to spend a lot of time with almost each one of these points, but we're going to press on. I want to encompass this as we take our walk from Jerusalem and have been, as though we've been joined by Christ who has shared this with the disciples in their unbelief. Hosea chapter 11. And Habakkuk is not Hosea. Let me find Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. Verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That this one 
who was going to come would have to come out of Egypt. And Matthew describes the circumstances of the, uh, the events of his birth that necessitated him, his parents taking him and running for their life down into Egypt, which wasn't a great distance from Bethlehem. Egypt was, the border of Egypt was actually pretty far north at that time period. It would have required not a lot to get over that border into Egyptian territory, but yet he was there for that season until Herod's death. He was there in Egypt. We know where the birth was to occur in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That was just quoted for us there in Matthew. But out of you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be least among the rulers of of Israel, yet out of you will come the ruler. And then we have that other prophetic utterance. of Rachel and the crying for her children. And the death of all those newborns in the region and vicinity of Bethlehem. As a king tries to thwart the plan of God. Well, we have these and many, many others that focus in upon His coming. But I want to press the prophecies farther because what Christ declared at the end of Luke wasn't just His coming, but His death, His burial, and His resurrection. I want to take these last five or ten minutes to just list off for you some of these prophetic utterances that had to be fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to go with me. I know you're going to be flipping a lot of verses of Scripture, but follow with me, please, to Zechariah. Our Sunday night study in Zechariah hasn't gotten this far. It will take a little while for us to get there. Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We have this prophetic discovery of Christ coming into Israel, riding on a donkey, and we find His entrance into Jerusalem having had this period of teaching and instruction of miracle-working power. We have Him now coming into His passion, beginning with this presentation of Christ as the King coming into Jerusalem. And in fact, we find that just as She is called upon. Jerusalem shouts and rejoices at His entry. We describe it as His triumphal entry. In Haggai, if you'll turn there. How many of you are trying to go, man, I wish I would remember my books of the Bible a little better. Haggai is right before Zechariah. Chapter 2. Verse 7. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Why do I include that? Why is that a prophetic utterance of this time that happens sometime after the triumphal entry? Because the people who are building the temple had gotten discouraged, and they had stopped, and they said, oh, it's too 
it's too small. It's not as wonderful as what Solomon built. And they got discouraged and they stopped doing it. And God sent the prophet Haggai and says, No, this temple, the desire of all nations, this one who is the desire of all nations is going to come into this temple and he will share his glory in this temple, the one you're building. Don't think of it as something small and insignificant, but I will take it and make it the most significant temple on earth. For it is the one in which my glory will walk. And when Christ enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, what does He do next? He walks into this temple described right here. The desire of all nations is not um, for peace. It is for the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And He fills the temple with glory as Christ enters every day of that week to teach in the temple. And all Jerusalem gathers there to hear Him every morning as He comes across and enters into the city and goes, makes His beeline right to the temple Mount, and he sits and teaches the people, filling that place with his glory, having purged it of the money changers. He fills it with the glory of his own teaching, that one who is described here as the desire of all nations. And yet, going back into Zechariah, now chapter 11, we find that instead of responding by repentance and faith, Trusting in this one, they reject it. In verse 12 of Zechariah 11, it says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the pot, or that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Our Lord was betrayed that week for the price of 30 pieces of silver, as Zechariah prophesied he would be. In Micah chapter 5, verse 1, we find that this would lead to him being struck. I didn't mark any of these, so I would have to chase them down just like you would have to. Micah chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Interesting that this is right before the verse that says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come one to be ruler of Israel. You know, I say it's kind of weird that they would prophesy about him being struck on the cheek before he was born. But in prophecy, that's the chronology isn't what is important to them. But rather, the principles at hand there. We go back into Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50 declares to us in verse 6, Let's go back to verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This our Lord endured as He prepared Himself for Calvary's cross. And then back to Zechariah we go to find the further events of our Lord that day. 
Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we are told, And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. For this one that they have pierced in chapter 13, verse 6 of Zechariah there. Let's press on. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And they wounded him in his hands. They pierced him. We go back to Isaiah chapter 53, and we can read all of Isaiah 53 as it describes him. He has no form of comeliness, and we see no beauty there that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. It goes on. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And again, throughout, we can read all of Isaiah 53 and find it evident in the events of that day. But that was not to be the end. He was slain for our iniquities. That was not the conclusion. Go with me to Hosea. The prophet Hosea. Right after Daniel. Chapter 13. Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I'll redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. He is hidden from my eyes. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, and east wind will come, and the wind shall come from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He will plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Go back with me to Isaiah. Where death is your sting? Where is your victory? You have been destroyed. You have been plundered by this one. Isaiah chapter 60. With this prophetic statement, following this sacrifice of this Son of God, of this one born of a virgin, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, and Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, the Son, who is the Everlasting Father, who suffers cruelly in Isaiah 53. We have men placing their trust and confessing their sin in, in 55, 58, 59. And, and we come to 60 and we find this powerful declaration to begin verse chapter 60. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You see, the prophets have clearly declared and all that they have written, it must be fulfilled in Christ. From his birth, from his lineage, even before his birth, 
to all the events around his birth and his conception itself as well in a virgin to his life, to his passion, to his death, burial, and resurrection. All the prophets declared has come. Even as the law of Moses pointed to Christ, so the prophets have clearly, specifically declared the time, the place, <laughs> the, the circumstances, the every event of that period, God declared ahead. And we find it fulfilled in this one person, Jesus. So what rests upon our shoulders today with all this information, with this declared, let it rest upon us as it rested upon them. Let it cut us to our hearts. Those who heard it from Christ's mouth himself in Luke 24 says that did not our hearts burn within us as we heard him describe all that he would do for us. The burden that rests upon our shoulders knowing this from God's word is that we, like those who ran to the cities of refuge, like those of Israel on that night of the Lord's passing over, and of Rahab in the period between letting down the spies out of her window and the destruction of Jericho, is that we remain under the blood of that one, Jesus. Be sure, brethren, this season, that in all our activities, that we are constant in abiding in that one Jesus that we celebrate. Let's pray.